My conversation today is with Sky Mathis, a modern seeker of truth and student of the occult arts and sciences, and host of one of the most beloved podcasts in the esoteric and adjacent communities today, Philosophical Minds. It's been my great pleasure to get to know and become friends with Sky. His hosting style is inquisitive, engaging, sincere, and unique, and his outlook has been an inspiration throughout my own endeavors in podcasting. Sky has interviewed some of the most influential and significant personalities in the occult and esoteric communities. His guest list reads like a who's who in the fields of esotericism, alchemy, magic, quantum spirituality, environmentalism, and just about every other niche corner of interest in the digital world and beyond. We sat down to talk about podcasting, alchemy, current social issues and trends, and being a human being. I always learn a lot from Sky, and I hope you'll get as much from this conversation as I did. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. It's time. It's time the world know my dark, filthy secret. I'm a pipe smoker. Ooh, what is it? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. What do you got? Tobacco? I got, um, I have you, a little you bit. Have a... Sorry, cut out. I have, uh, a little bit of like aromatic tobacco, but, um, at, at, I usually smoke like Virginia Perique. If I were to smoke that now, it'd be like having mm-hmm. three shots of espresso. So like I'm not I'm not gonna do that. I just have like an aromatic and I put some um some uh Egyptian blue lotus on top of it. It kind of relaxes me. Some people say it's a placebo, but I mean my my formula is if it works, use it. Totally. Yeah, everybody's kind of different too and how they their bodies respond. Um I've got a lot of different blue lotus stuff I like to play with as well. Um I, uh, I've got like a tincture that my buddy made. It's like a one-to-one um, hemp blue lotus formula that I, I'll take every once in a while and kind of experiment with. So that's kind of cool. Um, you know, yeah, somebody, I don't think I smoked the fly. You, you, you know so many alchemists. It's like wild. Um, and all of them are like top tier. I try to find individuals that are practicing that can provide experiential uh, information and like, you know, people that are actually doing the work and have experience and kind of like found a little niche community actually on Instagram. Kind of interestingly, you know, it's funny we think about, Social media, a lot of times with all the toxicity that it can have, but there is value there if you if you find it. You just got to try to know what you're looking for and then find the people that you can talk to that are willing to talk to you and extract the information that you're seeking. And that's, you know, that's what I try to do. <laughs> and I'm so interested in all the different versions and interpretations and alchemies of all different sorts because there's just a lot of different um opinions and there's a lot of different even practical practices within 
alchemy, different paths and all of that. So I love it all, honestly. Yeah, it's it's super fascinating. I mean, that's how you and I kind of got in touch was uh, social media. And um, it's definitely the particularly, you know, you introducing me to uh, Phoenix. That has kind of I don't want to say it's changed the course of my focus because it hasn't because it's like. Once you once you kind of go a certain length along the way of um, initiatic stuff, like that's just what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Um, but it has it has augmented. uh it has augmented my work to the point where now I'm like seriously working uh, to make the seven dailies, you know, um, of the, uh, the spagyrics and all that stuff. And I mean, I kind of was already getting set up to do, um, uh, you know, astral. I was growing by, by, um, you know, I was doing biodynamic growing principles, uh, moon phases and, and kind of, doing my best to separate everything into these uh planetary correspondences but it's 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 hard you know you got to kind of just do it on your own because everybody has different correspondences and no two sources are the same so i was already doing that and now i'm just kind of really interested in this alchemical lab work taking it one bite of a time but that's because of really listening to your show and and uh and listening to to phoenix i mean the uh the conversation you had with robert allen bartlett was like phenomenal man yeah he's another i mean he's a legend because even a lot of the people that i've interviewed have have studied under him too so it's like you know you can judge a person by their fruits and there's a lot of a lot of people uh a lot of alchemists that I've spoken to that have learned a lot from him and then built upon what they've learned from him as well. So, I mean, he's just amazing because, you know, he comes from studying under uh, Frater Albertus and, you know, the whole lineage that goes along with all of that, the PRS society. And I think it was actually Phoenix too, that had inherited a lot of the, the laboratory equipment and books and all of that from Frater Albertus as well. So Phoenix is another huge one. I mean, it's crazy because he's been at it for so long and coming at it from every different angle. So he's just got a lot of experience and different perspectives that he just gets you really fired up and inspired. I totally could see how you'd be inspired by talking with him. Yeah. So we're at, at any point, were you interested in practical alchemy? Like seriously, because I, I, you are a well-rounded person. When I hear you talk with your guests, you know, your guest list is, is consistently impressive to me. Um, I feel like I am very small potatoes, <laughs> which is a good thing. That's where I, I like to be. I like to be around people who are, who know more, who are, who are more well-versed. If you're, I mean, if you're the biggest fish in the pond, you're in the wrong pond. Uh, but the the interesting thing to me is how well-rounded you are but when i hear you talk about alchemy i'm actually very impressed uh 
to to hear how much you know and at at such a you can talk about it on such a high level at least um at least that's what it seems like from your interviews so i'm not trying to i'm not trying to pull the curtain back here it's just a compliment <laughs> thank you yeah i um i I'm definitely very interested in actually, you know, practical laboratory alchemy. And I want very badly to be more deeply engaged with all of that when I have the right amount of time that I can allocate towards it. Because I want to, when I do start engaging it, I want to do it on a more focused and proficient, non-distracted level so I'm kind of, my approach has been, my goal is to, or has been to interview and talk with the smartest and the most experienced alchemists practic practicing that I can and uh, get all, all their different perspectives so that I can have a really good foundation to begin working on these things for myself and then have those resources kind of built up to be able to utilize, have those connections established to be able to, you know, draw upon. And that's kind of been one of my goals uh, with the podcast among other goals, but I'm, you know, sometimes when you're in situations, maybe you can't, you can't pay for travel. You maybe don't have the ability to travel somewhere and go uh, learn from any particular individual out of state or out of country for me it's been about trying to find them communicate with them and answer the questions i can and try to fill in all the gaps with my interviews i have it all on the record and i can kind of pull from it and i try to just kind of brainwash myself with all this information as much as i can and try to embed it into my mind because i'm so interested in it so i uh yeah that's kind of you know one of my main goals i'm trying to build a super super solid foundation for all the different possibilities so then i can kind of have all of this uh, to work with and then i want to eventually definitely go into the, the practical experiential aspects of everything yeah I, i've been very very surprised at um at how frequently i've been able to change my mind or revise something in doing this podcasting thing i think it's been really cool to to do it it's been also been extremely challenging uh, i'm not somebody who likes to craft a conversation i'm like somebody i'm somebody who just likes to have them uh so in, in that sense it's a little difficult because i feel like i could just shoot the shoot the shit with anybody but you know obviously you have like you know established authors and stuff that don't know you from a hole in the wall and they're just sitting there kind of like yes ask you know, like I yeah. <laughs> like that's I don't know how to do that, <laughs> but but it's been really interesting. Yeah. To, um, it's been really interesting to see how much of like a metanoia in 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 certain instances instances I've been able to have by these conversations, and I feel like I, I'm at a point right now where I'm just just all the walls are just being just blown apart right now because I I spent. I did, I think I did the right thing in, in terms of an initiatic lineage. I fully, 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 fully just focused 
for 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 several years not one not two not three not four not five not six it's seven years I focused on on one thing and i know it really really well i just so happen to have the good fortune that that system is itself a little bit of everything so now i'm kind of you know i'm i'm well-rounded enough to be able to to talk to people about things but my preconceived notions are being destroyed by these conversations and it's amazing yeah for sure um it that's you know that's like one of the i feel like with podcasting or just opening yourself up to having conversations and talking about anything that you're interested in um whether it's alchemy or fitness or biology or physics or whatever if you're going to be someone that engages in multiple conversations with multiple individuals that have different perspectives and come at things from different angles you're in, inevitably going to run up against that and so the one one of the early podcasts that i because you know i was inspired to start my podcast by a bunch of other podcasts that i'd listened to and one of them was called i think it was mixed mental arts it was with a uh, brian callen and a guy named hunter motts it was a great podcast and it was really fun to listen to because they talked a lot about you know a lot of different philosophical stuff and they would talk about you know different like holding multiple perspectives and opposing perspectives in your mind at, at the same time and how they would you know go through all these different sort of mental uh challenges that they you would have to overcome in order to be able to basically like unlearn and then relearn what you think you knew about anything and in order to progress and like evolve and push forward you have to be able to adopt um, and integrate new ideas and get rid of the old ones that aren't as valuable anymore and it's like you know uh i think joe rogan always talks about like it's like in the world of ideas, you're, you can only beat one idea with a better idea. And, and you, you can't just stick to your idea for the sake of sticking to it and being egotistical and thinking that um, this is the one and only idea that is going to withstand time. And, and this is the idea that I have. And it's it is the way that it is and it's the only way it's like that's like a rigid ideology and rigid ideologies are not the way to go like you have to be flexible and you have to you have to um be adaptive and you have to learn to integrate and build upon and expand and evolve and all of that and so i think listening to a lot of other podcasts early on kind of you know pushed me towards creating this podcast and really inspired me and i kind of kept that in the back of my mind and tried to always not get too certain of anything because i found that you can't be too certain of anything these days it's like we're in the state where we're kind of reevaluating, you know the fundamental nature of things so it's i'm trying to be open i'm trying to learn as much as I can about different perspectives and um, formulate, um, you know, something that resembles reality in terms of things that can be 
replicated, you know, if you're using like the original scientific method or whatever, things that you can replicate, um, whether that be, you know, like in your line of passion, the magical realm might seem to others like it's something that is non compatible with maybe modern day scientific perspectives but when you do those operations as you've spoken to in certain ways with certain paths you arrive at certain conclusions and certain results and that's a repeatable process that you can replicate so you know yeah that's kind of been my whole approach we 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 say that um uh magic is not scientific but it is empirical um, I think actually, uh, yeah. I think Evo m- might have said that, uh, but I, I find it brilliant. It, it absolutely is. Um, but that's that's the interesting thing. I think that's what makes you uh, a great podcast host is the openness that you have. And that was one of the, the first things that really struck me about you because it's a keynote to every conversation you have. Um, you ask questions from a place of almost like this aporia it's kind of like um so in the socratic dialogues like socrates goes on to like challenge these big names right and he says that it's i'm look seriously i i just want you to explain what you think you know to me because i don't know anything i'm approaching it like a babe but the, the interesting thing is that, like, you read those dialogues, and that's not how he comes across. He comes across like he's intentionally goading you, and he's already had this conversation in his head. He knows exactly where to, exactly where to to corner you, and and. But I, I get more of a sincere vibe uh, that you you are actually on that tack of like, no, I want you to explain it to me because I want to hear your thoughts and. Um, it, it makes it really, really comfortable to for 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 people, I think, to come on uh, to your podcast, and it makes it it makes it easy to listen to because most people that listen to this stuff have the same questions and do not have, you know, they don't have the the level of 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 just baseline knowledge of this stuff to to really be able to dig in. I think that you know if if you hear if you hear like two alchemists, two established alchemists talking about alchemy, it's like listening to something in Chinese. Whereas you can you can listen, you can you can have a conversation with an alchemist, and then like a lay person can then understand that. We can extract value from that conversation, you know. Yeah, I remember um man, I don't remember when it was. There used to be this website, I think it still exists. It's called Sacred Texts dot com and it had all these different these different like books that it, they would publish on there all different kinds of alchemy books and everything and you know i'm very, very interested in religion and just different perspectives and all of that so i remember browsing through this these websites and i think it might have been one of the first when i came across you know hermes trismegistus and all of these various alchemical texts and reading some of them and, you know, the language is very veiled and confusing. And I'm like, man, this is so confusing. And sometimes I would even, I would seek out texts that haven't been translated. And I use like Google Translate and try to translate them. And it was really crappy the way that it came out. And I would try to like decipher it. And it, it got me somewhere, you know, it got me 
to where I can have questions to ask. And I was like, I wish there was a way that this information could be made more clear. Like not a lot of people, at least at that time, I had not come across a lot of people that were talking about it. So I just began to seek out anybody that was talking about any of it and try to get my questions answered. And, you know, that eventually kind of evolved into sort of where it's at now. And I will say there are instances where I do, I do have an idea of where I think a guest might go with an answer in regards to a question that I ask. So it's not always that I ask a question with no expectation. I do ask questions sometimes with the expectation that the guest will answer in a specific way because I've listened to them before, but it's something that I want to extract and, you know, bring out of them for the sake of providing a good quality uh, response that can be heard by the listener, which I do think is part of the art of uh, this whole podcasting thing that we're doing. So I think there's value in that too. I, I, I just try not to be rude or aggressive about how I got that. That's great. Noted. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> now it's, it's really cool. Uh, so that is, that's how uh, the podcast kind of started just this kind of genuine, uh, sincere sort of uh, attempt to, to seek out the, the most knowledgeable people about certain field, certain fields uh, and philosophy and esotericism and just learn from them. It's definitely yeah, a lot of it. I would listen to a, a variety of different podcasts where they would have on guests and be talking about subjects that I was interested in. And I'd always be like, oh, man, why didn't you ask this? Or why didn't you ask that? And I would want these questions to be answered. And, and then uh, one of the podcasts that I'm a big fan of is called the Tinfoil Hat Podcast, uh, the host it's three dudes it's sam tripley um johnny woodard and uh xavier i forget his last name but they're great they're fun they're funny you know sam's a comedian and but they explore a lot of you know fringe and esoteric subject matters too those that those guys were a big inspiration for me as well but i think he had said something he's like if if you're if you want to if you think you can do this start your own podcast ask your own question or something like, like kind of like you know it because he would get criticism people complaining about whatever you know i'm sure like why didn't you ask this it's just like what i'm thinking in my head he's like start your own podcast do it and i was like yeah he, you're right like that's what i need to do like i need to start my own podcast and and as much as it's not necessarily my comfort zone um like public speaking is something that for me i do like naturally i don't have uh that proclivity but at the same time i know that there's a value in um trying to challenge yourself and fill in those gaps in your life where you maybe feel like you're nervous about something or you don't necessarily want to do it because you're afraid or whatever and how that can increase and expand your potential and just you know so that's another motivation like trying to just be a better well-rounded uh, person i guess push myself yeah and that kind of it it, it it 
I guess your overall approach towards these things kind of ties into a little bit about what, what we wanted to talk about uh, this evening, which I think principally one of the things that, that we wanted to touch on was this kind of middle way, you know, this, this middle path between, yeah. between two extremes. It, it takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of this kind of receptive component or passive component, and it takes a little bit of this active uh, component. And I think that one of the one of the most interesting things about the way that we conceptualize balance, you know, and this middle path that's constantly referred to it's it's constantly referred to in in Taoism and Christianity, uh, you know, esotericism. Um. <clears throat> The interesting thing about how we conceptualize it is that you say balance and it's people kind of picture something that's very rigid, you know, um, and really we, we, we exist in a material realm where everything is constant, constantly in motion. You know, as I sit here, this solid desk, it only, it only appears to be at rest. Right. Um, and so there's something that drives students of the occult crazy. Uh, you tell them balance, balance, uh, that find the middle way. And it, they become so fraught with anxiety that it's like, you know, it's when I was doing postural assessments in like physical therapy and massage therapy, two fields that I, I worked in, you'd say, oh, if you tell somebody, okay, stand up straight, they, they, they automatically do this. It's like, well, that's that's not straight. So <laughs> you you need to you need to sort of goad them into it, trick them into it, and you tell them, okay, just walk in place until I stay until I say stop, and then you say stop at a random point, and that's their natural posture most of the time. You kind of have a catch them off guard, yeah. <laughs> and and that is you know you you can assess their balance from that, and and you you can't everybody has this 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 contour this natural contour this this way that they find grav uh their center of gravity and balance themselves and it can't really be exemplified you can't tell somebody what it looks like you have to show them how it feels and help them find that and that's kind of the middle way for for each individual person at least i have found um but it is there, but it's more of a dynamic equilibrium. It's like, it's kind of this, like a sine wave, but I picture it like vertically, you know? Um, and the thing is, you know, the, you start out like this, trying to find the middle way. And then over time, it's just less and less. And you're, you're at, you're, you're, you're less at extremes, but that's that's kind of the way that I um I conceptualize this idea of balance and finding the middle way. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. And first, I want to ask how, how much time do we have for this? Because I have some different ideas of how to go about this, but I want to know: Are we at what? what are, what's our time limit right now? We're, there, there is no time limit tonight because. My girlfriend's out of town, and uh, this is going to be the inaugural episode of season two because I'm so stoked and proud to have you uh, as as my guest. So we'll go as long as you you want to. Okay, cool. Because 
one of the things that I love to emphasize, and I just I kind of reiterated this point on another interview that I did recently, was like in terms of balance and in terms of alchemy and podcasting and conversing about the subject. There, ironically, because obviously there's there's spiritual alchemy and then there's the practical laboratory alchemy kind of you know the one of the, the physical and then the spiritual so to speak and i i feel like there is an overemphasis um in particular right now in terms of people discussing the spiritual aspects of alchemy and i think that is ultimately the most important aspects to be discussed though but I feel like people often shy away from the actual laboratory applications of things and how those are kind of correlated to and mirror the spiritual aspects of alchemy. And so one of my, my goals is always to try to cover both. And I've maybe emphasized a little bit more and tried to extract a lot more of the information on the app actual practical and experiential experiential uh operative alchemical processes and um operations and such because it's something that needs in my opinion to be brought more to the the forefront and looked at because it helps give a more holistic view of the entirety of the picture so i thought it might be it might be fun to maybe I could walk through some of the practical aspects just to give, you know, maybe a little taste of some interesting things that not a lot of people speak about. I think for your podcast, it'd be really cool because um, I haven't heard any of your guests so far speak to a lot of these things, but it could give people more of a deeper insight in that regard. And then I definitely want to touch on like, more of the spiritual and uh, middle path of alchemy kind of ideas that I had I wanted to talk about with you, if you would wouldn't mind. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. It's so funny because for the last like two or three days, while I wait for my my primary literature to come in, I've been looking all over the internet for uh, some kind of interview with someone I trust about you know, the basic steps of practical alchemy. And I've not been able to find a single decent one. So, I mean, this is, this is very synchronistic right now. So go, go ahead, have at it. All right. Well, well I'm going to, I'm going to enter into a kind of a, I'm going to go straight to one of the paths to the, the stone, the philosopher's stone. Cause I, on my last interview that I did, I did the, kind of went over my brief, probably not exactly accurate, but the best I could do understanding of the flamel path. So I thought on yours, I'd go about the, uh, the acetate path, which is one that, you know, a lot of people have been said to have had a lot more success with. And so I wanted to go over this one. So this is a, one of the many, because there are many paths to the stone, the philosopher's stone, the material philosopher's stone, um, the acetate path in particular, aka it's also referred to as the work of Saturn. And this is like 
in regards to the whole pyrolytic tradition around it. Um, this is, some would say, the most ancient. I think that's debatable, though, um, and precedes the flamel path, at least. But, you know, it goes way back to a woman named Mary the Jewess uh, or Mary the Prophetess that lived in Alexandria. And it seems that there's definitely like alchemical works and records uh, even prior to hers. Uh, but there was a, I think there was a Roman emperor at one point, uh, Diocletian, I believe it was, who destroyed all the records essentially because he was like afraid that yep. gold yep. production would destroy the economy or whatever. So, um, I guess the earliest source that we have modern day is uh, Zosmos of Panopolis. Um, after Diocletian's rulership in like 300 AD, he, he recorded in his Encyclopedia of Chemistry all kinds of stuff, which included the writings of Mary the Prophetess. So it's indicative that some information did survive and Zosmos helped kind of disseminate that. And so over time, the alchemical streams eventually made their way like into Portugal and Spain via like, the Crusades and the 1100s. So they started kind of translating a bunch of old Arabic alchemical texts and they got a hold of, you know, they, they got a hold of them and interpreted, translated into a bunch of different languages. Some of the texts describe that like the Arabs basically learned from the Greeks who got it from the ancient Egyptians and you know it came into spain and it gets picked up by i guess according to a lot of people the this christian missionary raymond lull who published a bunch of texts and maybe it was him or maybe it was people writing under his name but nonetheless uh you can find these texts under the name raymond lull or raymond lully so it comes into spain you know it gets picked up by him and uh, there was another guy named arnold de villanova same kind of story. Uh, you know, eventually time goes by. And then we got Sir George Ripley. He comes into play in like the 1400s, publishes a bunch more texts, kind of a little bit more clarifying and perpetuating the same sort of stuff that Raymond Lull and Arnold de Villanova were producing. And interestingly, uh, just like a side note, because I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but Ripley, he was a, a canon. Is, at, uh, as well as at, he was a canon as well um, at the priory of St. Augustine in Yorkshire. So he was like a Catholic priest. Um, so they all basically veiled a lot of this information in hermetic encoded language using like winemaking symbolism and metaphors. And that's just kind of how they, the language that they use to veil the information or whatever. So kind of getting into it. Um, so say, you have your flask or your philosophical egg or your chimera or the womb, so to speak, that you'll use. Um, get your crude matter, galena, galena ore primarily. Take your metal and you oxidize it. Then, re, you know, then it reacts with acetic acid. This is the acetate path. So for, first off, actually, I'll, I'll explain that it's believed that all metals and minerals grew out of one sort of primordial substance, like a slimy-like substance or chaos matter that is essentially like the physical representation of the non-physical primordial chaos, which you could like read about in uh, like the golden chain of Homer. And it's believed that 
just as plants or roots grow and evolve, um, so do metals in the earth. They grow and they evolve and they ripen out of this substance. And, you know, inside the earth, that's like the realm that they grow and they thrive in. So the understanding is that all metals are basically just gold in various states of evolution. You know, we get, say we mine an ore of tin or copper or whatever. Those are just different states. You know, according to the alchemist, those are different states of gold in its evolutionary process. So, you know, say we find like copper or silver, just a particular stage. It's a very slow, long, long process of evolving towards gold and then we mine them we take them out of the inner earth environment um it would be like basically taking a fish out of water or or like if we were to like take a like an orange fruit that was growing on a tree like in its early stage it's like little and it's green and if we pluck it off the tree it's it's going to stop its evolution at that particular stage and its natural growth process and it's going to be halted because it's being stripped from the like the vegetative life force source that's facilitating and feeding its growth. So the goal is how does one figure out the developmental stages and processes and science of the evolution of gold and then accelerate that process. So anyway, you get your crude matter and get your lead, your galena, your ore, you reverse engineer it back to its chaos state or the original substance that it grew from. And then you put it through a series of processes where you're essentially evolving it in an accelerated way. So you take your lead, you bring it to its acetate state. Um, so like, like, like the acid of vinegar or acetic acid, you want to get that naturally produced in particular. You get your galena, crush it up, heat it till it's basically fully oxidized. You take your oxidized lead, your lead tetraoxide, and you dissolve that into acetic acid. Remove that excess, and then you have your red or green, or what's often referred to in a lot of these old texts as uh, the, the sericon gum. And then the, the, the acid, it digests the lead, and the lead atoms, quote-unquote, become bound to the acetic acid ions so you have this like gummy substance composed of lead carbon oxygen hydrogen so the alchemical understanding of this was that in the process the vegetative life ether from the acetic acid has basically migrated into the quote-unquote lead atom and they used they like they used to think that this substance that we have now was the metallic primordial like chaos but it wasn't necessarily and i'll kind of like go on to explain why that is um and so if i recall you you do a pyrolytic fractional elemental distillation of your sericon gum and you go from there's you know there's like the water that comes over, then the air, the fire, the air would probably be like the gases, um, fire, the earth, earth is going to be like your uh, residual salts. Um, you arrive at your components. You got like a liquid, a gas, an oil, and a mineral. In the end, when, once you do all these, uh, these elemental distillations. So like my friend, uh, Trevor Polinsky, 
on one of the interviews that I did with him, he explained it. Like he used like negative 60 degrees. He did like a quadruple dry ice slurry cold trap and like six different condensers to try to keep the gases like all at bay from escaping because you want and you need them for your end product. So you're basically you're you're pyrolytically beginning to break down the atomic bonds that hold everything together via these different separations. And the last remaining compound in the bottom of the flask is going to be like your residual uh, mineral component containing primarily lead uh, coated in carbon. So here's like kind of the crazy part. So aside from the non-organic components, aside from the, the lead coated carbon, everything else that comes over during the distillation and ends up in the receiving flask when distilled, the, the oxygen, hydrogen, carbon components, when they all come over and cool down, once they cool down again, they kind of like magnetically rebind. And that coating phase or that cooling phase, once they're recombining, this recombination phase creates new substances that did not exist before the original starting substance. And this is like something that science is basically, as we know it, is unable to explain how this phenomena happens. Um, so you end up with you, you end up with like acetone and other things, um, and then like a red oil that's composed of like phenolic compounds. And bit like a little bit of carbon and lead comes over, but that's mostly mostly going to be left over in the bottom of the flask. Um, but yeah, mostly the acetone and the red phenolic compounds, which are also referred to as the sun and the moon. So now you have what you need to produce what's called the philosophical mercury out of the sun and the moon, the acetone and these red phenols which the acetone's not just acetone. There's other things in it. I don't exactly remember what it is. Um, and some will argue that this is the only substance that can dissolve metals, in particular gold. But there's also, you know, there's something called aqua regia, or there's a philosophical mercury of urine as well. And uh, from my understanding, talking with Benjamin Terrell of the Temple of Mercury, Basically, you need something with like a chloride ion and an oxidizing agent like a nitrate, and you can dissolve gold. But anyway, in this traditional acetate bath, traditional acetate path, it uses this particular form of philosophic mercury. Because if you look in the literature of alchemy, you'll find all different kinds of descriptions of what philosophical mercury is, and there's all different kinds of descriptions of different philosophical mercuries but in regards to the acetate path this philosophical mercury um it changes the nature of the lead or the gold or whatever uh to where it's no longer like a metallic substance and it's it goes through uh i think it's called like a radical dissolution where you can regress your metal back to its like true or actual primordial chaos state um but i think it's definitely debatable in terms of like other paths with you being able to also use things like aqua regia or philosophical mercury derived from urine and so on. But so you use this philosophical mercury applied to silver or gold to radically dissolve one of them and you arrive at this state 
and you merge this with the residual remaining salts to get basically the ferment of gold or silver or the seeds of gold or silver. So this part, I'm not exactly clear, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you combine this with the residual, we'd say like Saturn salts or the, you know, the, the lead salts um, that are remaining in the flask and arrive basically at your stone. And the red stone is going to be the stone basically associated with what's being used when you're dissolving this using gold. And then the white stone is another one that's produced when you're using silver. So you could take that and then you can multiply. And it's said that the amount of the stone that you mix with lead can convert like 10,000 times its volume of lead into gold. So you can like also increase the power of its multiplication action or whatever. You can, you can like, you can take some of your original acetone um, and acetone, it, it, you know, there's other things in it. Like I said, I don't remember what they are. Um, take this original acetone with the original phenols and then you redigest and you come to what's called, uh, I think it was like the azeotrope. And you, uh, which is like a homogenous, you're, you're arriving at a homogenous compound. And so you dissolve your stone in that again, and you redigest it until it forms a, a crystal again, essentially. And every time you do this, you, you're essentially multiplying its power of quote unquote transmutation, like from say, uh, like when I was saying you could do a thousand times its volume into lead instead of a thousand, it'd be like 10,000 10, times its volume. So this is the idea of multiplication. And then when it, so yeah, when it comes to like obtaining the seed of gold, you also hear uh, guys like, you know, Robert Bartlett talk about it being contained within the scoria of antimony, which you probably have uh, listened to if you listen to our podcast. And that is probably in regards to maybe like the flamel path, um, not necessarily the acetate path, I don't think. But yeah, the scoria or the glassy slag that he refers to, it could also be used as the seed, like the seed of gold that's contained within it. You could basically grow gold like you would a plant. Yeah, so that's, if it's that, put that, into that, the right that's, soil. That's one of the things that that was that was so like mind blowing to me that I think needs a slight bit of explanation is this idea that metals can have seeds that they grow that they that they multiply but over just vast periods of time like imperceptibly slow i think was the way that that you guys had put it but um that because because if you hear like seeds of metals <laughs> and you're not familiar with that with with yeah, that kind of alchemical <laughs> concept you're just kind of like all right i'm lost <laughs> right yeah so i guess the idea like um in regards to that is that like if you find gold in its natural environment and the surrounding like minerals that it's contained within you find you know there's uh, what's present there's like pyrite or arsenic and quartz and and so on so you basically the idea is that you want to create that sort of environment to take your your uh ferment your, your gold ferment and um, incubate 
anticipate it like with you know proper heat um proper period of time and the the heat factor i think is a big point because this is what's helping accelerate the process in terms of like in nature this heat wouldn't be exposed to it it would only it would be over such a long period of time that it would take that heat to have that effect to increase and expand the growth and create the conditions that would facilitate this sort of evolution where the elements would react in certain ways to facilitate the growth. But when you're taking it into your hands as an alchemist, you're, you're, you're analyzing and you're looking at these processes and you're creating the environment yourself and you're accelerating it. Like it's all about like accelerating the, a process that is a natural process and my, in my understanding at least, and I'm probably screwing a lot of things up, but I feel like even if I am, it's important that somebody tries to put these ideas out there and I'm happily would love for anybody to come and correct them. Yeah. It's what you're saying is there's a lot of uh, parallels. There's a lot here. Um, particularly stuff uh, relating to Zosimos of Panoplis, um, that, that just sticking out in my head is that, so you, you guys talk about practical alchemy. I can hang at this point. Um, I, I understand what a pyrolytic distillation is. You know, like it, it's just burning something to release. It's a dry distillation to, to release the quote-unquote vapors, the air and all that stuff. But we're like, my mind automatically goes is there are so many parallels to the initiatic path. Um, and we, you can even find them in like Zosimus of Panoplis wrote about some, his allegories were wacky, like scary, like priests bleeding out of their eyes and stuff. But there's, there's something that he, there's a particular thing that he talks about. That is, there are a couple of things within his like, super famous uh work I, I i'm not exactly sure what the name of it is right now i'd have to look it up but i was i was reading it the other day and it's a lot some of the things are found in like masonic ritual which is really really crazy it's uh you know um there's this alchemical component to to masonic ritual that um it, again i always give this caveat at least in the north carolina um uh, iteration of these rituals in, in, in our district, but uh, that that are highly, highly alchemical. And you're talking about basically what spiritual alchemy in things like the Golden Dawn attempt to accomplish. <clears throat> and it's it's kind of something that we say, and it's really interesting because I was just having a conversation about exactly that with, with Aaron Leach. You're expediting karma. You're doing to yourself what would take lifetimes for nature to accomplish. That's why I love like having these conversations with somebody like you, that's familiar with all of that sort of background is because you can lend a lot of insight into that sort of realm that can bridge and connect the two worlds of the physical and the spiritual. And that is like, right where we get to like you know things like the middle way and that's what it's all about is like it's not just not just one thing it's not just the physical it's not just the spiritual but it's both and we have to acknowledge both so like we're talking about like the the alchemy of the middle way 
like there's a lot to cover but it like to be aware of the extremities of things i know it's like moderation it sounds so boring but in actuality it's like the sustainable and harmonious way to go um and it doesn't necessarily mean complete neutrality either it's not like it's not to be confused with stagnation i think that's important like you, you can moderately progress the amount of weights that you lift at the gym over time versus going from like 10 pounds to 100 right away i mean you're just going to get injured that way and and over time once you build that capacity to 100 pounds via your moderate progression you have now cultivated a essentially like a, a playground of possibilities and you can operate within that expanded range of capacity of freedom that you've cultivated for yourself just kind of like how you've spoken to before in terms of learning an instrument i think you said something totally along those lines yeah, I mean, because it boils down to to patience and discipline, which are kind of they go hand in hand. They're basic. They're they're kind of the same thing. And those, what a lot of people don't understand is that those are spiritual disciplines. Those are, you know, if we're talking about practical alchemy, as uh, you know, if we want to just dip back to it as as a kind of a, a correlation, it's taking two things and having. Uh, you know, a, a third thing be. So one of the things that I do is I make soap. I've made soap for several years now. I, I, I hand, I hand make it. Oh, no way. Awesome. Yeah. I taught a class on it uh, for the first time last weekend. It was a hit, but, um, but the interesting thing is that even in that kind of basic chemistry, you're taking uh, sodium hydroxide, which is lye, which which is found naturally. It's not a. It, it doesn't have to be synthesized. It's just water leaching through potash, burnt wood, and so it's it's sodium hydroxide solution, meaning with water, and then you have some kind of fat, oil. Those two things come together. Science is happening, but they become soap. And the thing is, people are always kind of like, well. How can it be soap? Is it dangerous? It's got lye in it. First of all, the only way anything can be considered soap is if it has three ingredients, lye, water, and fat. Fat. Look that up. <laughs> that if, it's, if it doesn't have those three ingredients, it's not soap. But what happens is the reason that is, is because these, these chemical things come together, these naturally occurring things come together. And they create a third thing. And this process by which soap is created is called saponification. And at the end of that process, it is soap. It's no longer fat, lye, and water. It's something chemically completely different. And that's essentially a perfect analogy for what happens to the self when you introduce patience and discipline <laughs> it be it allows you to become that third thing Ooh, saponification that's a nice word i love that yeah <laughs> and i love i love this i love that you're doing that i try to move more and more towards that you know whole approach my cousin she actually makes our uh laundry detergent and i don't exactly remember all the, the ingredients but you know, she makes it from well, the minimum 
ingredients, whatever it is, it's a lot cheaper. Works great. You don't have to deal with all the unnecessary chemicals that you're buying from laundry detergents at the store. And that's not to criticize anybody that's using laundry detergent because I totally understand. But I think that it's really cool to kind of move in that direction of trying to come more and more closer to the uh, like the natural or uh, closer to the truth, just not avoiding any unnecessary uh, things that you don't need in anything that you're doing. And whether that's your the, the things that you're applying to your body, things that you're applying to your diet, the things that you're applying to your uh, mental diet, anything like that. So I, I love that. Um, and discipline that you mentioned, I always love to refer there's a the quote it's very popular now uh i think it's jocko will willink discipline equals freedom i know he's kind of like a hard personality and all of that but i think he's so right i couldn't agree more um when i first heard it it was a little confusing for me and now i'm totally on board i, I agree 100 so i always like to <laughs> reiterate discipline does equal freedom and i yeah. think you just illustrated that exactly with what you're saying <laughs> yeah i am i am a, a thousand percent on board with that i've i've read his book discipline equals freedom and uh it's it's just for i just can't i don't understand it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around why that needs to be said <laughs> but but it's 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 a powerful powerful thing. It's almost like an occult secret. It really is. People scratch their heads at it, and it's like, look, if you only have, if you can't, the whole idea behind why discipline is freedom is because we're constantly given a choice: what is best and what is easy. Okay, and they're never really the same thing. If you can't. If you don't have the freedom to choose, then you're not free. It's not a choice. So, you know, what 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 makes what gives you the ability to choose? Discipline gives you the ability to choose regardless of how you feel about it. So, I mean, it's it's and and making, you know, to go back very quickly to making so it, this is another reason why I'm attracted to doing practical alchemy. I get to take things that occur in nature, right? Like we're talking about and put them together and watch nature, science, whatever you want to call it, do something that I am just there to assist having happened. Right. I mean, again, I use a stick blender. They used to, they used to have, they used to make soap in like this gigantic cauldron. Right. And they, and you, the, like the, the, the wash women would sit outside in the center of the town and they'd stir the cauldron like the entire day. And then they just have this big block of soap that people would chip off and take home. So that's that was an all-day thing. Whereas, like, I have technology, I have a stick blender, and it takes me 20 minutes to assist these chemicals to the saponification process enough to where I can batch it. And it, it helps you really become acquainted with natural processes and, and become an agent in them, which is... I don't know. It just, it grounds you. It connects you to life. Totally. I think it's like, because there's also this perspective, you know, if people don't understand, maybe it's, it's all new to them. They think of this idea that maybe in general chemistry or whatever, they think of it as if it's an intervention and you're messing with nature 
But in reality, when you're doing things properly, it's more like you're co-creating and becoming uh, an agent of working with nature and you're, 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 you're becoming involved in what nature is doing and you are yourself a, a product of nature. And so I think that kind of when you're, you're saying that, that's what it makes me think of. And I don't know, kind of coming back to the uh, extremities thing though, like I think it's important, like becoming aware of the consequences of extreme behavior or reactions to the principle of cause and effect. Like, I think that's so huge too, because being aware of the potentiality of things as like psychological or emotional levels of things like unconscious projections, perhaps if, if someone has harmed you and you haven't properly processed any particular trauma, then that emotion or energy is stored up somewhere and it's eventually going to go somewhere for better or worse. And I, say if you're abused, uh, say if you're abused by a 50-year-old man, maybe maybe you're more easily triggered around a 50-year-old man. Um, but ideally, you'd want to aim to like transmute these things with, with a gentle ingenuity versus risking some kind of explosion in the quote-unquote flask of your psychic experience or your psychic field, so to speak. <laughs> so, and like, so right now, to me, from my vantage point, if I look out into the collective, there's a lot of uh, turbulence and transitions taking place both internally and externally. And this reemergence and domino effect of basically being forced to like reevaluate nature and the nature of truth and reality. Uh, political systems are shifting, financial systems are transitioning, technology is evolving, and people are having to keep up with all of it and just do their best to function. And that's why I really love that phrase, kind of coming back to you earlier, that, uh, what I was saying about flexibility. Uh, there's this phrase, improvatus apto quad victim, uh, to improvise, adapt, and overcome. And I think that's such a middle way sort of quote and answer to do and in my opinion what you know we should all embody and i'm not trying to necessarily like tell people what to do i'm just getting my genuine impressions and attempts at solutions in regards to the times because we can spend you know all of our hours complaining about shit that sucks with all these various issues at you know at some point we need to improvise adapt and overcome and you know there's another cheesy quote the to be the change that you want to see in the world. Like anybody can simply philosophize a solution, like uh, complaining about like littering, littering or something like trash on the side of the freeway. Um, the freeways, they have so much trash. What's wrong with people? Uh, somebody should come and pick this trash up. The, the government should come and pick all this trash up. La, 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 la. Like, no like be very careful and aware of the consequences and the cause and effect of getting into the habit of outsourcing anything within your sphere of influence to any corporation or government or entity, especially one that doesn't necessarily have your, like a good track record and your, your uh, best interest in mind. And it's not uh not have a good track record of reciprocal benefit. Like you be the change, you be the person that you would love to see picking up the trash and 
and watch how your whole perspective shifts. Like, I think that's so important. Yeah. And what's, what's also interesting about that alchemically, at least from a philosophical point of view, is like you're saying, be the change, but also adapt, improvise, and overcome. Um, so adapting to the change. Like, for instance, probably about 10, 15 years ago, I was a little bit more... Um, how should I put this? I was a little bit more of a bleeding heart, a little bit more on the softer side. And some of that had to do with age. And some of that had to do with the fact that that was not the prevailing paradigm of the society in which I found myself. And so I felt like I had to present a counterforce to that within my sphere of influence in order to balance it out. Because the mass of people it being a mass, right? It containing so much energy, such a powerful egregore is constantly at the extremes. Whereas now we're shifting to the same arc, just in a different extreme. And I find myself gravitating more towards the other direction. And so in that sense, I'm yes. adapting intentionally adapting myself to be a counter ingredient or a counter element to something that I find to be uh, just this constant extreme. And, and, and where, where we find ourselves when we do that is being mercury because mercury is the, the androgene, right? It is that rebus state. In other words, you have, so, <clears throat> you know, you've got the active and the passive, the celestial niter and the celestial salt that 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 sort of that primary duality that come from the prima materia the, the first monad and and then from there you know you have the divisions of the four elements and the 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 tria prima so you've got you know fire and air being the active water and earth being the passive you've got sulfur which partakes of the both both active elements fire and air and you have salt which partakes of both passive elements water and earth but you have mercury that partakes in the middle of one active and one passive and therefore when a mercury presents itself to us in alchemical verbiage it means this neutral state. Mercury can be active. It can be passive. It can be male. It can be female. And therein lies the adaptability. 100 million percent. That was beautiful. That was like a beautiful breakdown. <laughs> and I think like kind of along those lines, like Joe Rogan, of course, he says it best. Um, he says, be the hero of your own movie. And I agree a thousand percent um, in whatever way, like whatever that means to your unique soul trajectory, be the hero of your own life. <clears throat> but I, I kind of want to go back to the extremities of things on that note and the, the whole cultural polarization and manifestations occurring because it's happening on like so many levels. Um, you know, but with men and women in particular, masculinity and femininity, you know, we have, there's like this concern of the perpetual trajectory of the male patriarchy and the fears that persists, persist in regards to the 
male-dominated institutions and maintaining power positions. And then we've got like the concern of the war on the masculine in particular, like the masculine being expressed through men, uh, which in general is kind of like the natural proclivity. Um, and there's this woman, uh, Callie Brogan, a female author who she very much embodies and connects with her femininity, by the way. <laughs> um, but she goes as far as to describe it as an energetic castration. And she goes into the whole damaging effects of this sort of quote unquote agenda that she calls it um, on the population. And, you know, you often hear guys like Jordan Peterson touching on all of this stuff in detail. So it's, it's in the air and we have valid concerns with all of these sort of things. And there's healthy and unhealthy responses occurring and playing out right now from different individuals and groups. So, so like my message and like, I think exactly what you're mirroring, like, I feel compelled to put it out there because it's just something I'm passionate about, especially in these times of transitions to be aware of that, that fear it has a tendency to override your reason or cloud your rationality. And if you allow it, it can definitely have the tendency to steer you wrong. So I, I say like, yes, definitely acknowledge and discuss these issues in an honest and open way and don't shy away from them out of fear and be, becoming fearful or angry about anything can lead to acting impulsively. And unless you're in a literal self-defense type situation impulsivity is not ideal um it's it's not helpful for anyone to go from thinking that because you know say for so many years there was a patriarchy that we should now have an exclusive matriarchy where now only women should lead in positions of power it's that's not helpful um yeah and then and then what it's not helpful as a man what what you end up with then is you end up with the masculinization of of the feminine um and that is uh you know you, you you the problem is that it's it's been such um it's been the 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 air that we've breathed for so long that we completely take it for granted that these attributes of uh, that we find valuable, in, particularly in um, in commerce and things like that, are you know and have been well at the very least they were established in a period of male dominancy and therefore are absolutely a reflection of male masculine values and and this holdover of that entire system, but just wanting to exchange one group of people for another but yet still insert it into that that exact you know that's not it's kind of like uh (laughs) it's kind of like what um uh man i forget her name um in the first batman movie uh batman begins chris nolan's uh batman movie when he's talking about when when bruce wayne is talking about shooting joe joe chill in the court he brings a gun. She just goes, that's not justice. That's revenge. You know, that's, it's, the, it's the same. It's the same thing. The issue is that you're cutting your nose to spite your face. Cause most of the people that you want to, you know, that you want to see f- fall, haven't done a thing to you. 
um, you know, as individuals. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's an important thing because you, you're just constantly setting yourself back into the trap of the agenda. Absolutely an agenda. And, and, and the, to your point about fear is that you can, you can make someone predictable. You will be, you will be better poised to predict their move next move. If you force them into being reactive and what does fear do it makes you react it doesn't make you you're going to respond in yes as you say impulsive but imminently predictable ways and we just saw that (laughs) i'm not gonna go into that but we just saw all that happen in in real time you you when you it's it's like chess there's two ways there's two ways to get somebody you either scare the shit out of them by putting them in check and get them in a corner, or you lull them into a false sense of security. Those are great strategies <laughs> for for um for making someone act in a way that you want them to act that that causes you to have an advantage. It's almost as if it's been done by design, perhaps. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. that's and that's. Where like the approach of the middle way is so important, like kind of on the same note, also, it's not helpful, you know, as a man to remain dismissive of, say, like the reality of a women's menstrual cycle or become ignorant of the magic of a female's biological reproductive power and and take that all for granted. Like I totally 100% acknowledge that that whole aspect and that whole perspective as well and it, it it's not helpful to allow yourself to be possessed by any sort of popular movement that claims superiority in either camp like black or white or man or female it, it's not the solution to overvalue the divine feminine or overvalue the divine masculine to place one as superior to the other i think is a huge mistake and I speak to this so passionately because I see it manifesting, you know, out there in different forms and, you know, biologically in terms of sex, each sex has its own complementary gifts to offer that can be appreciated and honored uh, in terms of, you know, gender roles. It's important to emphasize that, that masculinity or femininity, those can be found within both sexes at different levels of expression. Like, like you can have like a strong a muscular man that displays very nurturing feminine qualities or or maybe like a petite female with painted nails and her hair all did um that's very assertive in terms of like a masculine disposition in terms of her uh her style and within all these things playing out like in nature everything ebbs and flows and there's always rising and falling uh psychologically potent egregores like how you had mentioned earlier of, of emotionally charged ideologies, some of which arise organically as responses to sociological environments or evolutionary progressions in consciousness, others of which arise artificially and are quite literally manufactured as cultural or psychological warfare tactics by tyrannical narcissistic sociopaths that basically want to divide and conquer um so so, something to keep in mind like you know polarities they don't exist for 
the flourishing of divisiveness and conflict. Polarities can be complementary and work with each other uh, in a unifying way that, you know, that's how nature creates. Like, exactly. we're all, essentially, we're all one thing. We're, we're just individuations. It's, and, and nature actually, so, so there's this, there's this idea, again, when I was studying biochemistry, there's this idea of uh, enzyme, enzymatic substrate interaction. And essentially it's this, it's this model of lock and key where it's like this particular, the, the substrate of the enzyme, the way it's able to, and, and you see this even in like, in, in neurochemistry, there's a receptor and then there's, you know, a, a, a chemical or a compound or something. And it's, it's a lock and key model. And essentially you, you find that all the way down in, in nature, you, you find it on m- microcosmic or you know in that case microscopic but microcosmic and macrocosmic levels and we forget society forget who's got to stay home and wash the dishes and who's got to go out and earn the bread if we strip all that shit aside we just need each other mentally emotionally physically Dion fortune has a really um, she's, she's got a really interesting way of, of talking about how men are active in their, are more active in their, their physical being, but on the emotional level, they're more passive. And, and then above that on the mental level, again, they're more active. And then on the spiritual level, they're more passive. And, and there's an inverse of that to the feminine. Now, again, these are all generalities, but they help in, in having us make sense, right? I mean, that's why the hermetic perspective is so important. A hermetist, you know, and, and that was brought for, forward in time by the Rosy Christians, reads the book of nature because that is our best bet, as to how this entire thing relates to uh, the spiritual, you know, it, it is an, an analogy of spiritual principles. It can point us to to the way that things work. But it, you know, there, there's that Edenic story of of, uh, and I think we touched on it in your in in the the last podcast I did with you on esoteric Christianity. But if I didn't, you know, it's it's worth also reiterating this idea of like you know, Adam or, or Eve being taken from Adam's rib to me, I don't view that as like, yeah, absolutely. Adam was, was most likely if we're looking at it in a literary context, the product of, of he came first because he was the product of, of men writing this stuff, conceptualizing this stuff, writing it down. But the idea is what's important. The fact that we were a unity and in the material yes. realm, we are now a duality. You don't, you don't get back to the holism by subjugating one over the other. Like, okay, I'm in charge of this shit now. It's like, well, good luck because again, now we're we're at extremes. We we we're not working from the point of balanced power, and the only way that we do that is to work together to each other's strengths and weaknesses. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Dion Fortune too. I I think you were actually the one that got me onto Dion Fortune. She's so fantastic. I've been kind of going into her writings lately. Um, but yeah, another thing on the subject, uh, kind of you know going back to latching on to 
social movements, um, some of which, you know, they may be intentionally weaponized because you see people who put their souls on pause and hand over their allegiances to these social movements. And it's just sad and it's gross. And so like in terms of like instances of comedy, especially if, if your friends or family are joking around, like, like pay more attention to the intention um, of a thing like, like comedy, like stand up comedy in particular is one of the, I personally regard it as one of the highest art forms, like the ability to transmute all of these kind of things we've been talking about into laughter, to take insecurities and judgment and fears and self self deprivation and past traumas and all that and transmute them into like pure golden laughter and joy to me is like one of the most amazing things to witness and so I'm like personally a giant advocate and proponent of comedy and comedians and, you know, freedom of speech. And it, 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 I bring this up because it, it comes down to kind of deciphering intentionality. And I personally, I, I love like dark humor and uh, preposterous, free spirited, say what's on your mind displays of well-crafted bits that don't necessarily conform to any political correct narrative uh you know making fun of anything and everything black uh white gay straight rich poor just doing funny accents and doing impressions and mockery and it's amazing and beautiful and i'm grateful that there's a place for it and 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 what it does like why it's so valuable is it provides a space for this sort of transmutation to use like an alchemical term to occur in the best possible way. Like you, you find out a lot about yourself in terms of what makes you maybe feel uncomfortable or why it, maybe there's something to look at. And the results is 90% of the people like that I see in the crowd after a good comedy show, they walk out feeling happy and smiling and they probably, a lot of them think like, ah, it's okay. Uh, uh, turns out that we're all a little fucked up in our own ways and in our own different ways. And it's okay. Like I can acknowledge it and hell even laugh about it. And they're like, it's like this idea of loosening up and releasing a sort of pressure of like, wow, this person just articulated so many points about psychology and society and it's beautiful. And, and basically it's dangerous to assume things and it it teaches you when you're assuming things i mean that it's bad but it it teaches you to be less judgmental and it's okay to make you know jokes and laugh if if you're someone who's like overly serious all the time and you're so rigid about every little thing um like it's like what kind of life are you really living so i don't know i always encourage people to maybe explore things like that especially these days in terms of just trying to go and enjoy a a comedy show and maybe just listen and and try to have fun and uh listen to what they're saying and see what comes up for you because from my experience it's been one of the things that i really enjoy that helps me uh uh i don't know like just understand a lot more about 
human nature and society in general and be able to be okay with it and have a sense of humor about it because it's like we can't always be so serious all the time we gotta like have some laughter you know what i mean <laughs> yeah I yeah I, I, absolutely i'm i'm a huge fan of of comedy um I don't know if you can call like mainstream comedy comedy anymore. It's not funny, um, but uh, you know, that's why like the advent of YouTube and podcasts and stuff, people are just like, right, I'm going to do it over here because it's the, the censorship is, is stifling. And somebody once said that being human is a guarantee of injustice. And yeah, we, we carry that tension around silently, constantly. Some sort of injustice, some sort of insecurity, some sort of projection or, or defense mechanism. We carry it around silently. And when you don't call things out, when you don't talk about them, they have a way of haunting you. The tension builds to almost this powder keg yes. situation. That, and it has to go somewhere. Like you were saying earlier, it has to go somewhere. It will. It's just whether or not it's going to go somewhere productive and whether or not you can be able to control it. And when we laugh at these things because people call them out, it's diffusing the power that it's, it's hold on us. That underlying tension is released, you know, because it's all through us. We're just vessels of everything. Nothing, nothing, nothing truly in, in that realm exists unless we manifest it. We, we, we express it in some way and to take all that injustice and all that tension and to turn it into laughter that's alchemical it you turn a poison into a balm you know you didn't take something mm. else and add it to it you took what was there and you 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 brought it to light and uh you know that's why comedy is um is so so important and uh you know you to me right in all this spiritual work one of the biggest risks you spend so much time worrying about yourself your own complexes your own behavior your own transmutation everything becomes about you and and things become very very heavy all the time it's 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 always about you know like um you know the next uh you know spiritual checkpoint it's that's not something you achieve okay you don't ach achieve those things um but we work at it as if that's the case and um to me there are two surefire ways to tell if you're making progress on the spiritual path the first one is how do you feel how do you behave when somebody you know or somebody somebody you like or somebody you don't like begins succeeding how do you feel that will tell you a lot about how far you've yeah. come the second the second thing is can you laugh at yourself not just alone but in a room full of yeah. people can you laugh at yourself laughter do you know the story about um about theseus and the minotaur the greek myth no, tell me about it. Uh, just very briefly. So uh, Theseus goes, he's the son of a king. He goes to, to, uh, to Crete, to King Minos, whose wife had an affair with a bull. Uh, and they had to put what it created, the minotaur, this 
half man, half bull beast that just needs it, it, it needs to devour Athenian children, right? The, the 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 king of Crete, King Minos, asks for every every year they have to, or every five years they have to send like ten children over so that they give the Minotaur something. It's this big kind of just nightmare for the Athenians. So the king, King Aegeus, his son Theseus goes out on a brave quest and he says, I'm going to slay this minotaur. No more, no more. We're not giving him any more kids. This thing's a, uh, uh, you know, an abomination. So the minotaur was kept in the middle of this like labyrinthian maze. While Theseus is there, he's like, I know I can kill this thing, but I won't make it out of the maze alive. King Minos's daughter, Ariadne, she falls in love with Theseus and she has a spindle. She likes to weave. And so what she does is she says, Theseus, take this end of my string and bring it into the labyrinth with you so that when I will, I will weave this string for you so you can find your way out after you've killed the Minotaur. Theseus kills the Minotaur and he follows the, the, the I mean, he would have died in there if it wasn't for her thread, the Ariadnean thread. And to me, Laughter is the Ariadnean thread that God gives us so that no matter what happens here, I'll find my oh way my out. Gosh. Oh, man, I love that. Yeah, that's such an important point. Yeah, and I think like, you know, we've probably all heard of uh, a Karen. <laughs> Poor Karens out there. I know there's a lot of amazing Karens, but <laughs> uh, it's become sort of like a, a personality archetype at this point like a lot of us recognize now that it's this kind of personality archetype or individual that is just kind of looking to be offended uh kind of just looking for something to criticize and like nitpicking uh i don't know moral of the story is don't be a karen i guess <laughs> but yeah except if you're karen i'm sorry <laughs> except if you are a genuine karen yeah. Or if your name's Karen. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how much more I got on the whole uh, middle way thought, but anything else you want to ask me, go ahead, I guess. No, I mean, I, I, I loved that because, you know, I think one of the reasons that you and I got along right off the gate is because, like, we've never talked about this stuff before, you know, and, but I felt an underlying kind of sympathy towards that very balanced um, perspective. We all of necessity have to interface with the world. And so we, we present a certain way we have to. Um, but I think that one of the ways you present yourself has always in my estimation been indicative it has sort of betrayed an underlying balance in you and you know i'm glad we got to have this conversation and sort of you know fleshed out some ideas that are not you know a lot of people don't want to touch these things I, you know fyi i will talk about this stuff at a drop of a hat anytime you want to we we can talk about politics religion like i will i don't care how anyone feels about this stuff uh you know because 
we're not saying anything to hurt anybody's feelings. We're talking like human beings, you know, and that's really where we have to get back to, you know, this center point, this where we can all kind of relate to with, to each other. And um, you don't always get to express your thoughts on these matters on your podcast. So I'm really, really glad that you did it on mine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, and that's that's where I'm at as well. It's hard sometimes you, when you're engaging in conversation with other individuals, you don't want to offend anybody because you do appreciate them and their perspective and where they come from. So it, it, for me, it's not necessarily my intention always to project or install or infuse my my opinion within any of my interviews or conversations, but. Uh, I definitely do appreciate and thank you for kind of providing me the space um, today to just provide and, you know, give me the space to express some of my thoughts that I am passionate about because uh, something that I don't usually do. A lot of people do ask me, they do want to hear more about my opinions of things and here it is, I guess. <laughs> so it's great, man. Uh, you're consistently one of my favorite people to talk to. So I, uh, I hope that we don't go too long without having somebody on someone's podcast again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Sky Mathis philosophical minds podcast. Um, Have a good night, man. You too, brother.